Hello and welcome back to Being Miraculous, a podcast by Shweta Shivrami. For those of you tuning in for the very first time, Being Miraculous is a podcast to inspire and live life to its fullest through my journey of self-discovery. Miraculous is the derivative of the Greek word miraki, which means to do an act with complete willingness, undivided attention, and wholehearted devotion. This podcast is a reminder of how we're not alone in this journey and on the simple things we can do to make this life a memorable and a beautiful experience. Hello everyone and welcome back to a brand new episode on Being Miraculous. Today we're going to be talking about something very relevant to all of us and we are going to be speaking about shedding the ego. And I have with me Ram Ramnathan. Ram is a builder of multi-billion dollar businesses including Kocharya where I did my coach training with over 45 years of experience in corporate leadership. He is a senior entrepreneur and a C-suite coach and leadership trainer. credentialed by all major coaching federations and an accredited trainer, author and speaker on leadership, coaching and spirituality and I could go on and on. Thank you so much for being a part of this conversation Ram. I'm really excited about what we're going to record today. Yeah, thanks so much Rita. Right. So, before we go into the topic though today Ram, would you like to share your journey as well? I think it will help set the context for our readers. Yeah, sure. Um for most of my life i have been um, a corporate uh, executive corporate leader and uh, yeah there was a point in my career where i did build or help build multiple dollar companies and uh, i also was uh, helping startups and i started my own uh, enterprises and latterly uh, that is currently the last one has been kocharya which we've been running for the last about almost 7-8 years and uh, as part of my journey at one point in time i moved into a spiritual or a monastic journey which lasted for about 6 to 7 years i had been a lifelong meditator and still continue to be one with deep interest in comparative religions and spirituality not in the religions themselves per se but in the spiritual context underlying those religions and for a while i delved deeper into it in various aspects especially of the vedic uh context of psychology and philosophy including tantra and yoga and so on and so forth and uh, after that for whatever reason i decided not to pursue that with uh, external help as it were with the help of the so called gurus decided to sort of stay within myself in terms of internal exploration through meditation and so on and that led led in some ways to coaching which i do believe is to me a highly spiritual pursuit which is based on several meditative aspects of the journeys that I have been through which now helps me in a sense to help understand myself and become better and also help other people create that awareness in them so in short that's what the journey is so i take one day at a time uh, what happens happens uh, with a certain amount of acceptance and disengagement i think Uh, that helps a lot and that also probably in some ways relates to today's topic thank you 
right right thank you thank you so much for sharing that ram and i think um, a lot about the topic also came from a lot of our conversations earlier as well and you know this i've heard you speak about mindlessness quite a few times and uh, i think that's where the conversation i thought we could talk about uh, the ego uh but before we go any further maybe we could just start with uh you explaining what you mean when you say ego yeah uh, well i i don't know it, it, it's very difficult to say what i mean by ego um uh, commonly what is ego uh, what what most people understand as ego is to say that someone is egoistic as someone has ego it's as if that person is judgmental that person is uh, arrogant and, and and so on and so forth um either in eastern uh wisdom the philosophies and psychology as well as in the western that does it is not quite what that means at all so one has to delve much much deeper into it to understand uh what that word means i mean the moment you use the word ego in english uh the derivation is from the latin word which just means i so ego is just about the person as the person thinks about that person uh what am i thinking at this moment so if you look at it from a probably the oldest of the western psychological concepts of uh, freud who talked about the three states of id ego and superego and way what he meant by ego was that state in which you are in true reality uh the id is the instinctive part where the in a sense if you go back to another version of uh, the brain model the reptilian brain where the past memories uh, and some of the uh, perhaps some of the other memories are stored and that is very very instinctive it's about the fight and flight reaction it's about where you are and and the reptilian model applies to the earliest creatures which evolved like the reptiles and the fish and so on which just had that part of the brain they didn't have any other part of the brain and as evolution happened uh, there was a the brain became bigger and the central part of the brain which is commonly referred to as the limbic brain came into being and that limbic brain is a emotional brain and that is a brain which actually really is about the present moment the sensory organs are connected to the limbic brain the limbic brain senses everything that happens around us so most mammalian creatures including birds and so on have in addition to a reptilian brain part they have also the limbic brain and most of uh, the mammals except the primates they would stop there and in the case of the primates which led to the human beings evolution their brain evolution from a neurobiological point of view came into the frontal part of the brain the frontal and the prefrontal and so on and so forth which freud calls the superego because that superego is in a sense a critical part of the brain or if you want to use a better word the discriminating part of the brain which sort of reflects and looks back and studies as to what has happened in our reality and what may need to happen uh, differently in a sense and you then go into moral and ethical codes Unfortunately a lot of those moral and ethical codes as well as our values are not really as unique and self-generated as we think them to be they are all borrowed they are borrowed conditioned experiences and we form them we heard from their parents grandparents somebody else a society this is what it is and 
like so many idiots in this world think that women are inferior or somebody else is inferior your color makes you bigger or better whatever it is all those kind of stuff so th- th- those those are not any kind of inbuilt biological um, uh, sort of wisdom or knowledge that is generated by us but these are things which we sort of absorb in a way as part of our experiences especially starting from childhood and because they start from the early in childhood they are coming from sources of authority who we respect um they in a sense become gospel and religion is one of those the worst form probably in terms of uh, i would say the most uh, dangerous belief systems uh, are part of the religious system which are in turn um, sort of modified to fit into us so if you look at it from that perspective starting from your question of ego whenever you talk about ego you cannot you if you are really looking at it from a psychological perspective you need to relate it to the id which is a intuitive part and then the superego which is a more critical judgmental part as it were and in between is the reality part which is about hey what am i now at this point in time what am i thinking what am i feeling what am i sensing and then how does that correspond with my belief systems how does it correspond with my future actions that i need to take so the ego becomes a kind of a mediator and that is really what freud meant so i'll stop here and and then we can go a little deeper into what uh, the explanation from the ancient wisdom of the vedas and so on right right and actually that was one of the curious questions that i had right um, a lot of, there's a lot of negativity around the word ego but if you were to look at freud's literal translation of the word i as ego uh, it doesn't seem extremely negative so where do you think uh, the negative backlash of ego actually comes in I think that, part of ego yeah, yeah that i think that comes from the superego that comes from the frontal part of the brain that comes from the prefrontal part of the brain where we start putting in attributes to it uh, in some senses when uh carl jung developed further on uh, freud and developed his collective consciousness approach and the multiple models um uh, where he talked about archetypes the self the shadow uh, all those kind of things um there was already an element which came into being there there's one part of it which is your true self which i would correspond with the atman and so on the concepts in the eastern religion and then there's a shadow side which is always present uh, which is that part of it which we interpret as the arrogant ego selfish ego and so on and so forth because we sort of make ego synonymous with selfish not the capital s selfish but the small s selfish so it is that's not quite true um so freud i think tried to connect and and that freud has written extensively uh on uh, eastern uh, philosophy as well in fact there is a set of speeches of his which are about kundalini the psychology of yoga where he has gone into deep uh, analysis of uh, the tantric versions of chakras and so on and so forth so he was very knowledgeable about it. a lot of that in terms of his concepts of archetypes and so on and so forth brought back a lot of that ancient wisdom over and above uh, the freudian model where 
much of the unconscious part of it was related to sex uh, related stuff so in the in the original freudian model of uh, what you would call the iceberg model uh, the everything under the iceberg was pretty much all of your id was below the iceberg the instinctive part uh, both in superego and ego parts of it were below parts of it were above uh, but there are large parts of it that are still below so which is why it's often said that uh, much of what we do is influenced probably 80% 70% depending upon how you want to measure it is truly driven by the unconscious which is very true and then when you dealt dealt uh, into it deeper he said it's not just the individual consciousness and consciousness there is also a larger collective what he termed as unconsciousness which in many ways is not very dissimilar to the collective consciousness approach that the vedic religion took so going back into the interpretation of how the ancients in india uh, or what used to be the vedic religion uh, space because this word india and hindu itself is a corrupt uh, mogal word uh, it's a persian word the original word for the hindus was sindhu which was the word sindhu just meant water it's a river moving into the sea and that is how that civilization happened so if at all we want to call it we should call it a sindhu civilization not a hindu civilization we call it a vedic civilization based on the knowledge that we acquired at that point in time there the mind was beautifully defined this was 5000 years ago it's there in our upanishads um the mind uh, was divided into four parts the first part of it was called the chitta which is the memory uh, sorry it was the manas which was the uh, senses the word manas had multiple meanings it meant the heart it meant the mind it meant the senses as well and the senses were really the outward facing uh, elements of our human brain which collected what we hear what we see what we sense what we touch what we smell what we taste etc and those are then processed by uh, or stored in chitta which is the memory and whatever we store in the moment memory is really in a sense interpreted interpreted by what is called the ahankara which is the ego and then there's a higher intelligence or buddhi which allows us to think of ways of how to use what we sense and what we sort of interpret out of that now literally 5000 years later for the first time neurobiology discovered that these parts were very similar to what the brain today contains the senses we know that uh, our visual senses are right at the back auditory somewhere here and so on and so forth different parts of the brain in the mostly in the peripheral parts for good reasons perhaps the um, what is sensed is then transmitted into a part of the brain called the thalamus or the hypothalamus which is a central part of the brain a part of it relates to the reptilian brain in terms of long term memories the part of it refers to the hypothalamus which shows the short term memories and there is amygdala which is a emotional processor and they are the first elements to respond or even react to what we sense um so in most animals they just respond or react to what they sense they don't think about it uh, a dog if uh, you step on the dog it helps or it uh, senses fear that attacks and so on and so forth uh, despite the fact that it's been uh, let's say 
associated with humans for a long time. So if you go into uh, animals which are mostly in the wild, uh, wolf or a tiger or whatever it is, their responses are purely, purely, purely emotional in the moment, at the moment what they sense and what they respond to. So in human beings, that part of it is then, it leads to whatever is being processed, whatever is being understood there, which is the memory, which is the chitta. It goes into two sets of processing. One is the hankara, which is the ego, which interprets, like Freud says, uh, a part of the crossover between the limbic and the prefrontal or frontal cortex in terms of uh, understanding what it means to us, the way we are, and also about what we need to do about it in the future, which is the prefrontal, which is the buddhi, and so on. So these four elements today are pretty uh, well relatable to what the modern theory of uh, neurobiology is uh, from the ancient uh, wisdom. And within that ahankara, um, the, in the Vedic system, there were it was there were two elements to it. One is called the mamakara, and the other is the ahankara. The mamakara is about what intrapersonally what you think about yourself, your own inner fears and values and aspirations, and the other is the ahankara, which is about how we relate it to other people. So, in a sense, today if Daniel Goldman's emotional intelligence model is being used. The first part of it is understanding ourselves, um, managing ourselves, and the second part is understanding other people and helping us to you know, relate to those people. Uh, so if, if you put all together, you find that in a way the centrality of how we express ourselves, how we behave, how we respond and react, the, the ahankara or the mamakara, the combination of that, the ego, is probably the key because that is what we are doing in real-time processing, uh, either taking from the past conditioned memories or what needs to happen in the future. So everything that we do can be managed if we focus on that part in a sense, and which is why very often uh, we, we keep talking about the fact that let's be in the present moment because that's all that matters. Because truly that's all that really matters. Because it is in that present moment, you are really receiving, interpreting, storing, responding, all that is happening in that present moment. A lot of it is related to what we have experienced in the past, what we have stored as memories, no doubt about it. And a lot of it is relevant to what would happen consequentially in the future. But that operative part of it, like in a computer, it happens in the moment. That's all matters. So if you're able to manage that, then you would be able to manage both your past and your future as well. So all that you really need to, if you are truly sensible, is to constantly be aware of what happens to you in the present moment. That awareness of, where for want of a better word, where your ego is, where your self is, what does it feel, how does it feel? And as a result, what do I need to do today, at this point in time, this minute, to be able to manage that, uh, to be of greater value to myself? Uh, it's a bit complicated, but I don't know how much of it, what I said, <laughs> made sense to you. But if, if, uh, no. if something is not clear, please do uh, ask me. Yeah. No, I think uh, it definitely made sense in the sense, What? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, what I understand is that the ego is a very integral part of 
how we receive assimilate and process information in the brain as well and that is that is the place from which we respond on a day to day basis right so considering that ego is a very central part of how we think and how we behave and how we act you know we started the podcast saying that we we need to shed the ego right and the more i think about it uh, it seems quite impossible if this is the central part of how we process then how do you say a person can probably manage the ego then if it is yeah no the, you are absolutely right shedding the ego is a very stupid concept i mean it comes from the misunderstanding that ego is all bad that the ego is about only arrogance it's about selfishness and so on and so forth that's not true at all so it's about really becoming aware of what's happening becoming aware of one's ego becoming aware of one's self for a moment let's replace the ego with the true word the correct word for it which is the latin word of i or what you could use as a self um so even superficially we look at it not go deeper into the atman kind of a concept the first thing that we receive when we sense something is the emotions and so if you stay with only the senses which is what very often today the so called mindfulness aspect of uh, experiences are about it's purely about the sensory aspects and they stay primarily with the senses because that is the emotion that is that is where it first uh, lands so you are still going to be responding or reacting it's not even responding you're going to be reacting in a very emotional way or an instinctive way which is what animals do so we are not really using any of our capabilities as a human beings where there's a much larger potential in terms of the prefrontal cortex and the buddhi which is available to us so to me it is about and in in in, a, in a one of the upanishads called the mandukya upanishad the states of awareness are being described in four levels the western mind knows only about the three even freud and jung talked only about the three the fourth one is is a beautiful uh, super aware state that only the mandukya upanishad talks about to the best of my knowledge the first one is what we call the mindful awareness which is better than no awareness at all you are not sitting like a couch potato just shoving chips into your mouth watching football or whatever nonsense but you you are really observing what you're doing you are you are aware of what you're reading or what you're seeing what you are doing which most people don't and therefore mindfulness is very important but the mindful awareness is a very very early state of awareness where you are primarily focusing on what you are sensing at that point what you're seeing what you're hearing what you're touching what you're smelling what you're tasting that's great absolutely great but it leaves out a large part of it which is about what else can i do with that information what i sense and for for that to for for someone to work through that the mandukya upanishad talks about two other stages following that one they call as the something like the freudian kind of state which is done at the subconscious state or in this particular case it is called the sapna or the dream state for instance in a dream state you you go through pretty much all the responses of what you do in a reality state as well in a awake state uh if you should have a dream be it a nightmare be it a, let's say a happy dream or whatever you are experiencing pretty much everything exactly the same way in the, in the dream state the only difference is that the body is not affected 
uh, if supposing uh, an animal attacks you, you feel all the emotive aspects of uh, uh, whatever other ways you'll be realizing in the uh, awake status. But in the dream state, the only difference is that even if it attacks you, at the end of it, you, you do not show anything physically. So it, it's, it's uh, in what is called an energy state experience. And the third state the Mandra Kupanishad talks about is the deep sleep state, which they call as the unconscious state. But curiously, the word that they use for it is the word pregna, which means very high level of awareness. That means when you are in the deep sleep state, there are things which are happening in your body, even though you may be physically unaware, even cognitively unaware. There are multiple things that are happening within your system, parasympathetic, sympathetic, autonomous nervous systems, and so on and so forth. And they have enormous amount of intelligence and wisdom which is being created at that particular state. So there are techniques how you can access that wisdom and that knowledge. And these three states are reasonably known, though not to the extent of what the Vedic uh, psychology talks about. But the fourth state is completely different. It is a state in which you are completely disengaged from whatever is happening in the mind. But you are able to look at it purely as a witnessing observer. That means as I am talking to you, I'm quite aware of what I'm saying. I'm quite aware of you ask me any questions. But at the same time, I'm probably placing myself as a disengaged observer, not becoming an actor in that conversation that we both have. And it seems very difficult, but it can be something that you can learn from practice. That state of awareness is what I call mindless awareness, which in Mundaki Upanishad it's called the fourth state of awareness or Thuriya. And in Zen it is called the no mind, Buddha called it the Shunya, where you are no longer in the matter state of mind and body, but you are evolving into an energy state of who you are, which is beyond the mind and matter. And so it beautifully combines today with the principles of quantum science. So if you are able to visualize for a moment, it's difficult that like the subatomic particles of which we are made of, we are both a particle as well as a wave. The particle is matter, the wave is energy, and we are that simultaneously. So can we function in the same way as a subatomic particle would? And if you are able to even conceptualize it, and eventually there are practices, uh, you went through the Creative Future program where you go deeper into some of those meditations. And there are meditations like Vipassana, for example, the 10-day Buddhist Vipassana experience, Yoga Nidra, and so on, which can lead you into that state. You move away from the feeling of that you are just mind and body, and you start realizing that you are energy as well. You are matter and you are energy as well. And in the energy state, while you are aware of the mind and body, the matter, you have the capacity, the capability to just be an observer or a witness to it and disengage from it. At which point, the ego in that sense, which is influenced by the superego, which is a critical, judgmental possibly those kind of uh, aspects of it, you can completely dispense with that. You can be completely be non-judgmental. 
You can just listen to what is being said with unconditional positive regard to your client as a coach. And so for a coach, my personal uh, belief and advice is that if you can evolve yourself into that state of completely be an observer, completely be a witnessing observer without being influenced by any analytical judgmental interpretation of what the client is saying or what you are thinking, then you could look at it in a very, very neutral way, in a very coach-like way. And effect of that is going to be very significantly different from if you were to involve your, let's say, analytical mind, which is what very, very often we talk about as ego. So coming back to the starting point of what you said, how do I shed my ego? Then the relevant part of it is how do I shed the judgmental, analytical, cognitive part of my thinking process and elevate myself into a state of energy, as it were, while just being an observer and a witness, completely dispensed with any kind of judgment based on any past experiences I may have had. Uh, so, in a nutshell, that, that's really what uh, we are looking at, in an egoless state. Right, right. So, what I hear is that the negative parts or the being egoistic and being self-centric, the, all the negative stances that we associate with ego, uh, can be managed if we were to elevate to a level of higher consciousness where we observe a little non-partially towards what's happening in our lives, right? Yeah, Absolutely. But, um, you know, the question that usually comes to my mind when I say this is, you know, while I've been practicing meditation for almost two and a half years now, not anywhere close to that, but about, uh, you know, what I always feel is that while that state remains, that consciousness or that awareness remains, say, for a few hours, right, Uh, right after you do the meditations. But the minute you go into your real life, uh, you know, you get a call, you get an email, you get some work related thing or anything else that can probably disturb you from that state of awareness. Uh, It goes like that, right? So how would you say that a person can manage to center themselves and continue that level of awareness throughout their daily activities? Yeah, first of all, let me put it this way. I don't think it is necessary for that awareness to be active all the time. The awareness is in your background. It's like if you're familiar with the South Indian music, Carnatic music, there is a tanpur which is playing and the bass notes and where the singer may experiment with various other alternatives. It's exactly the same way. There is a clear awareness within you that you are energy, you are not just mind and body, just the material part. And there is an awareness within you that I need to be careful about how I interpret my past experiences. Some of them may still be very relevant to me. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to think of the words. I don't remember the exact words in Sanskrit. Experience has two kinds of words, expressions. Uh, one is called Anubhuti and another is called I think Anubhava or whatever. One of them actually means that even though you may have had an experience before, each time you, you need to go through to experience. It's, it's almost like, for example, from early childhood, I know that I have touched fire and fire burns and therefore it may be harmful to me, while it may be good in other ways. 
So I wouldn't go and touch something which is hot to prove to myself that it is hot and it hurts. So that memory stays with me all through my life. But there are certain other things where, yes, under certain circumstances that I have experienced something which have not worked well for me, but had they been done in a different manner, they could have worked well for me. So that is where my baggage, my past experiences would in some way unconsciously prevent me from even trying something out. So I become very risk averse, I become invalidated. So I'm not comfortable talking to strangers uh, because my past experiences has been that uh, uh, some experience with a stranger has not been good and so on and so forth. You become a recluse and many other kinds of things. So in real life, you need to, as long as we are in mind and body, we are interacting with other people, we are in that real world, whatever it may be called, it's temporary and therefore it is Maya and so on and so forth, for, for us to exist, we need to be able to operate with full acceptance of the reality around us, the fact that we are, even though we may be basically made of energy, but we are mind and body as well. So that distinction has to happen. We are none of us, um, or let's say 99.99, whatever number of percent. We are not the Ramana Maharishis or the Ramakrishna Paramahamsas who stay in a mystic state where they are completely disengaged and their relationship with other matters of the world are at a level which, which are very, very different. And we are, but you and I, uh, if I have to, let's say, run a company, if I have to interact with people, I have to have relationships, and I have to be a father, and I have to be a husband, and I have to be a grandfather, and so on and so forth. I cannot stay at that level saying that I am energy. I have to be operating at the level where I am mind and body as well. Um, so like you said, yes, at a point in time in a deep meditative experience, if I have had that glimmer of the truth that I am part of that energy, that realization stays with me. And therefore, the way that I exercise my awareness is in relation to that. And sometimes uh, when situations happen differently, I have to remind myself that, look, this is temporary. I'm going through with this. And therefore, this too shall pass in a way. So the difference that I see is very often the way I express it to other people is like, for example, we are all aware of what a sinusoidal wave is. It has huge amplitudes and pitches. Now, in a normal state of mind, anything negative that I hear about depresses me for days and sometimes weeks. Anything joyful, I may feel, oh, I need to go and party and do this or whatever, I get engaged in that. But when I am aware of who I am in energy state, that sinusoidal wave becomes much, much flatter. So even if I hear some extremely depressing news, news of grief or loss or whatever, yes, it does affect me. But then very quickly, it becomes a, a flattened kind of a curve. It doesn't stay at that. So whether it is joyful, whether it is uh, painful, uh, sorrowful, whatever it is, the, the, the reactions are much more muted. And, and so I, I think 
you you cannot change life life is going to be something which is always a mix of admixture of happiness and sorrow and loss and gain and whatever it is but you can certainly change the way that you react and respond to it and that makes your life much more livable it doesn't take you into deep depressions or kind of a, most of us live in manic depressive states and we can easily get out of that state into a much more balanced state by being able to do this right right so ideally identifying that balance so that neither the peaks nor the troughs are too high or too low yeah you don't But, uh, you don't necessarily identify that balance it happens because consciously i doubt very much whether you can do it but once you become aware that um, that you you are much more than the mind and body state that it leads to a state of acceptance for example that i'm able to accept what's happening around me because then i know in a larger sense that all this changes tomorrow may be a different day uh, something else may happen so i'm quite okay with it right and uh, what would you probably say to a listener um, who hasn't experienced that state of awareness of being connected to that energy uh, say they are still being driven by a sense of ego or a sense of ahankara how would you say the listener can transcend the one thing question that i would ask say if, if someone someone says if someone believes that that's a state they want to be in there's nothing that i or anybody else can do i don't want to say anything to them but if someone comes to me and said look i'm uncomfortable in that state okay let me put myself as a coach i don't want to interfere anyone else's lives uh, unless they come to me and say look i need help and i am in this state and this is not a state of happiness for me it's not a state of fulfillment for me and it's not a state of joy for me so in that kind of a uh, i can explain to them i can sit with them and explain that yes uh, life as you to let it happen is life is going to be irrespective of what you like is going to be a mix of uh, joy and sorrow it's never going to be any different but uh, it happens through the covid it happens through something else or whatever it is we all are born and we die and the single biggest fear is of death for instance but for instance if you are able to even understand that that death itself is immaterial because it's a passage it's a rite of passage from there you move into another state and if you truly believe in it then if that before the you you dispense with the fear of death then you can dispense with any other fear of any loss as well or any other sorrow as well you would be able to look at it from a perspective that yeah this has happened but i am accepting it that needed to happen what is the learning from there what do i move from there on ahead or so that that, that is the only way that i can explain and if they are willing enough to listen to it and if it makes sense for them then they would do that yeah. right right so consciously disengage with the mind and the body one step at a time i would say consciously disengage from effects of the experiences that you have yeah which could be related to the mind and the body and the senses um you can choose to sort of you don't disengage in the sense that you don't feel it so for example if i have pain i feel the pain but if i look at the pain as something which is 
um, you know, affecting only the material part of me. And there is a part of me which is immune to that pain, even it may be seeming like a visualization or a fantasy, but it does help me. It allows me to uh, sort of be able to cope with that pain in a much better way. Right. So what I understand is that when you feel it, but not identify with it. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, the beautiful example is uh, um, when Ramana Maharshi was having terminal cancer and the doctors uh, wanted to sort of administer morphine to him and says, uh, you are in deep pain, so this is not good for you. He said, this body itself is not mine. So how can the pain be mine? Mm. Of course, he comes from an extraordinary state of self-realization. Not all of us would be able to do it. But your tolerance to pain, your tolerance to sorrow, your tolerance to negativity significantly increases. And you learn to accept, yeah, it's happening at this point in time. And I'm able to do that. At the same way that when I'm working with somebody else and uh, irrespective of what let's say the past baggage of experiences may evoke in my mind if I'm able to stay away from it and look at it purely from compassion unconditional positive regard as we call it then my ability to interact with that person and be able to contribute is going to be that much better Beautifully told. Thank you, Ram, for that. Thank you. Um, so we usually ask all our guests uh, a simple question at the end of it. Um, being miraculous, as you know, stands for living life to the fullest. Uh, and we usually ask, what does living life to the fullest mean to you? Because there are so many interpretations to that. Uh, what would your take be on that? Look, you know, there are multiple ways of looking at it. I very often talk about needs and wants. The needs mm-hmm. are very basic for your, even if you go through the Maslow's hierarchy and things like that. But unfortunately, we convert our needs into wants. The wants are what we believe we must have because we look at other people. If someone has something, what I think is better than what I have. A simple example is, um, if I'm, let's say, I'm a villager, I'm walking, and if I see somebody going in a cycle, I would like to have a cycle because it seems better. If I have a cycle, I see someone in a scooter, and so that is better. I'm in a scooter, a car, and so on and so forth. So a want is is pure greed. It's it's greed which never stops. It, it expands. Whereas if you are able to sort of, in a sense, live with the basic needs of what you have, it may be at various levels depending upon what your availability is. I think that's the only way that you can sort of be happy. The moment the greed enters the picture, there is also fear, and the greed and fear are what take over our lives. Now, given today's context, that information is bombarding you from everywhere, and then that uh, you need to have multiple things, which perhaps you don't need. All you are really in need of is perhaps enough to sustain yourself in terms of two meals a day and have a shelter and clothing or whatever. So it's not always going to be possible for you to stay within those very limited boundaries of need, like a mendicant a monk or a sannyasi or something like that. The next best way that I find is possible is if I'm seeking something, that I'm looking for something which is more than what I really need, which I feel 
could be a want, does it have a benefit for someone else as well? Can I look beyond myself? So if I'm asking for something, is that ask not only for myself, but for someone else? So once I start look, looking at myself as a part of a larger community, a larger continuum, where whatever I seek is also going to be of value to someone else. And I think that makes a huge difference in terms of, let's, let's say, one's own perception, happiness, and everything else. Um, so I'm not just seeking for myself. I'm not just seeking that I become a millionaire or a billionaire or whatever happens. But can I do something with what I have with other people? So the wealth and power and everything become enablers to satisfy the needs of multiple people, not just my own wants. I think if you're able to reach that level to a large extent, probably we can be more fulfilled. That's what I believe in. And the second is stay in the present moment, accept who you are, what's happening to you at that particular point in time. These are the possible methodologies of uh, being happy and fulfilled if you can. Right, right beautiful message thank you thank you so much ram for being a part of the conversation i always learn a lot every time we converse and thank you so much for being a part of being miraculous yeah thanks uh, i'm quite grateful for talking about this but a large part of it even as i think back on what i said it's uh, i don't know i mean it's going into a different space uh, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense the first time around you need to think about it uh, so, if at a later point in time you you need a session too in terms of more explanations from any of your viewers, please let me know. Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for that time. Thank you. <laughs>